0: Hi there, I'm James Dapperci and this is Coffee and a Case Note. Team, today we are going to speak about a partnership dispute that is in fact almost identical, or based on an alleged identical breach, as one that we talked about about four years ago. Uh, it is going to be about the doctrine of a res judicata a of abuse of process, and all this sort of good stuff. What are we talking about well Historically, we have this suggestion that there are a group of partners together that are operating a professional services firm, and what happens is one of the partners goes ahead and takes a benefit for one of their related entities, and that benefit is in the order of 11 or $15 million or some substantial amount, and what is alleged is that benefit is actually a benefit of the partnership that was improperly flowed um, by this partner in breach off to one of that partner's related entities. and in short, what happens years ago is the partners of the then constituted partnership sue this partner and uh, there are some early uh, interlocutory decisions and and early findings about liability and this sort of thing and it's looking uh, pretty obvious that this partner's liable and what happens after a couple of those court decisions come down but before the very final decision is made is that the partner allegedly in breach enters into a settlement deed with the other partners who are arguing about it at the time and after that deed, it leads to that partner in breach paying a certain amount of money, um, accounting back to the partnership for all their assets, leaving the partnership and those proceedings being dismissed. So, dismissed the claim for that breach of that 11 or 15 million dollars or whatever it was for that partner. That's happened. That was some years ago, about two years ago from uh, the time we're recording this note now. Now what happens after that is another person sues that same defendant in respect of that same breach. Interesting, right? And the person suing says, well, I wasn't a party to the earlier proceedings. And in fact, I had left the partnership by the time those proceedings were commenced. I was unaware of the proceedings. I was unable to intervene in the proceedings. And so I'm bringing a brand new fresh claim uh, for my interest against the defendant in respect of very, very similar facts. In essence, for the sake of our discussion, we'll say it's the same breach. And so you can imagine the defendant is not especially impressed to hear this. The plaintiff nonetheless wants to march on with, with this claim. And the defendant says, Broadly, there are three reasons why you should fail, why you should not be allowed to bring this claim against me. Reason one is that um, it is an issue estoppel, that the doctrine of res judicata operates. And essentially, what that doctrine is about is to say, hey, if the court's already made a decision that binds you or binds people who are closely related to you, who are your privies, then you are bound, you are estopped from departing from the finding of that earlier court. So that's the first thing that the defendant says is you're a stopped due to res judicata. Second thing the defendant says is, well, there's this settlement deed and you're a party to it. Essentially, you know, the partnership signed up to settle the whole dispute. I paid my money and I did all the stuff pursuant to that deed. And in doing that, you were yourself self-bound. And then the third thing that the defendant suggests is that the plaintiff bringing this application would be an abuse of the court's process in order to be dismissed on that basis. So let's just step through some of these questions. Right, um, the res judicata question, in essence, it deals with uh, a decision that is a final decision and a decision that affects the relevant party or their privies. So the first thing the defendant says is, well, um, res judicata applies to this because the earlier dismissal of the proceedings was a final decision. What the plaintiff says is, hmm, not sure I agree with that. It was a negotiated outcome, remember, it was pursuant to a deed, and so the parties all came together and negotiated it. It wasn't as if the court had made final orders. The court might have been about to, but before the court did that, everyone signed up to this deed. So it doesn't really count for the sake of res judicata as a final decision. Now, the court was unimpressed with that submission and found against it and said, well, no orders were made uh, regardless of whether they were consent or not, regardless of whether they were the subject of a deed or not. Uh, these were orders finally disposing of these proceedings and so they were final orders. And so the defendant succeeded in that first bit of the res judicata test, if we put it that way. Now, remember the second bit of the test and this is complex law that I'm explaining uh, and with a bit of a broad brushstroke approach, so forgive me for that. Um, But the second part of the test, if we're putting it that way, is was the plaintiff a privy of the parties who had earlier settled the dispute? And this is quite complex because, of course, at the time the plaintiff wasn't in partnership with the people who were running this litigation. The plaintiff wasn't even aware the litigation was being run person wasn't in business with them at all and so on their reading of things had no opportunity to put on evidence to make arguments um, or to really engage with this claim against the defendant. Now the court had to work through the relevant law a little bit and the court firstly said well privies is the test for whether you're someone's privy isn't did you get a chance to put evidence on in the earlier thing it's a little more complex than that and um there is an older piece of law in relation to this of he who takes the benefit should take the burden and vice versa and so this test they kind of work through relates to that now what is analyzed is a number of different things the plaintiff is attempting to bring this claim on what the plaintiff says is a 9.8 percent Uh, Basis, 9.8% was their partnership stake, and they say, yeah, we're claiming 9.8% of the amount that was lost. And the court has to really nut this out and say, well, no, that's not quite right. Your 9.8% entitlement is not an entitlement to each of the partnership's assets. You own 9.8% of each of the partnership's assets. That is, the legal right you have as a 9.8% partner is for a 9.8% share of the corpus of the partnership on its dissolution. So, the right you're claiming is not your 9.8% share of the partnership's right. The right you're claiming is the partnership's right, and when the partnership gets all its stuff in, you'll be entitled to 9.8% of whatever's left over after expenses are paid and all that sort of thing on the dissolution of the partnership. And so the court is able to say, well, the right you're trying to press, regardless of you using this 9.8% calculation, is a right of the partnership. You're saying, partnership is owed this money, the, part, the duties to the partnership were breached and so it's essentially a partnership right you're attempting to press. Now what the court says is that trustees and beneficiaries are privies and then by analogy that the rights as between trustees and beneficiaries are you know, analogous to the equity, uh, the equities between partners and the court says well just as trustees and beneficiaries are privies so are partners privies. And so what that means is that the defendant has satisfied the second part of the res judicata test because remember the first part was, were they final orders? Yes, they were. The second part is uh, you can't bring another claim that you or your privies have already bought. And what the defendant is able to prove is that that earlier claim was brought by the privies of the plaintiff. And so the plaintiff fails on that res judicata basis. Now for completeness, the court analyzes the defendant's other two positions. Remember the defendant says there are these settlement deeds, they apply, and the defendant also says abuse of process. So let's have a quick think about those. The settlement deeds were of course between each of these partners and the defendant. They were also between a representative of the partnership as it was then constituted. This gets a little bit complex because our plaintiff today was a partner pursuant to a 2006 partnership agreement and this breach happened while that agreement was on foot. So the breach was arguably an asset of that partnership. After the breach, but before the litigation in 2017, so we've had our plaintiff leave the partnership, a new partnership agreement in place, technically a new partnership in place if we're being really fine and technical, Uh, 2017 a new partnership agreement is struck and there's a representative for the partnership who's this agent who can go off and do things. And it is those partners to the 2017 partnership agreement that go ahead and commence the litigation and then negotiate the settlement deed and and you know settle the whole thing up. And what the plaintiff says is, well, I wasn't a part of that partnership. I didn't appoint that representative. Um, I wasn't a member of the partnership that came and conducted this litigation. I didn't know about these settlement deeds. They don't bind me. And what the defendant attempted to argue was, the opposite was essentially to say no no the settlement was with the partnership and it was to deal with you know these claims generally and to the extent necessary it was representative of the rights of the plaintiff and the court said no that's wrong the court said the settlement deeds did not bind the plaintiff and if the court had not made the finding about res judicata that we mentioned earlier then the settlement deeds would not have bound the plaintiff and would have allowed the plaintiff to march on. So the defendant wins on res judicata, loses on the settlement deeds, and we then consider abuse of process. What the plaintiff, i withdraw that, what the defendant says is that, hey, look, we're re-litigating an old claim here, uh, and there's the prospect for this being a, a very unfair outcome where I'm justifiably considering this claim settled and you know, well, I'm just here to re-argue it again and incur all the same costs again. That is an abusive process. Now, um, in order to have proceedings dismissed for abusive process, it's a pretty high bar And the court says, in this circumstance, the high bar was not met. Because the defendant could have joined the plaintiff to the earlier proceedings, to dispose of the plaintiff that way, to make sure they were joined in, um, and therefore disposed when the proceedings were dismissed. They also could have tried to join them into the settlement deed negotiations, to have them try to sign up to that settlement deed. That would have also dealt with things. Because the defendant didn't do either of those things, the proceedings would not have been an abusive process. But don't forget, because of the doctrine of res judicata, the plaintiff was prevented from bringing the claim. So let's just bring that home, shall we? Plaintiff was prevented from bringing the claim pursuant to the doctrine of res judicata, but was not prevented pursuant to any settlement deeds and was not prevented on the basis of an abusive process. So luckily for the defendant, res judicata applied. If it had not, the plaintiff would have won. In the circumstances we see today, the defendant got up and I hope that assisted you, and I look forward to chatting again soon over another coffee, and in respect of another case note. Cheers.